0: Last week, we dove into a sermon series called In the Beginning. And in this series, we're, we're taking a deep dive into the opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis, chapters 1, 2, 3, and following. And our goal is really very simple. What we want to do is develop a, an understanding of, well, everything. I mean, if you think about it, if, you go back, if everything goes back to the beginning, and it does, then it behooves us, and I just like to use the word behoove, it behooves us to have an understanding of what God was doing, what God intended when he chose of his own free will and volition in his sovereignty and his grace to create everything that has ever been. It's an amazing, amazing task. Now, today, we're going to, Really, really do a deep dive on what it was that God was doing in creation, the first six, seven days of creation. And specifically, we're gonna camp out in what he was doing when he made humanity, when he created people in his own image. So I want to ask you to do this. Whether you're at home, and if you're at home, man, we love you, and I love that you're a part of this, but if you're in the room as well. I want you to turn to your neighbor and tell him, this is, about you. this is about you. So listen up. Tell him, so listen up. I'm just saying, this is where we are. Now, it's fascinating to me that God chooses to cast this story twice. If you read Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, it's it's going to appear at first glance like there's some redundancy, like there's some overlap, like almost as if God, in inspiring his holy word to be written, forgot what he had just told us. But you have to understand that much more than a linear narrative or a historical record, this is actually a description of what God did and then what he intended to be in this world. You see, you and I are created in the image of God on purpose, with a purpose. And that is established as a baseline in Genesis. And Genesis really becomes the baseline for the rest of the Bible. If you read from Genesis to Revelation, you're going to find God collaborating, interacting with, relating to humanity in a way that no other part of creation does. It's a fascinating, fascinating journey. Now. Let me just tell you at the outset, creation, and and specifically Genesis chapter 1 and 2, into chapter 3 a little bit, but particularly Genesis 1 and 2, are some of the most misunderstood, misquoted, misrepresented verses in the entire Bible. There is so much here, but let me just tell you what is not here, if I could, just at the very beginning. This is not a scientific textbook. If you think that Genesis describes the means of creation, you are sadly mistaken, and you're actually trying to impose something on the text that is not there. Genesis is about biography. Genesis is about who did it and why he did it, not necessarily or even specifically how he did it. Now, I want to just very quickly run through the six days of creation that are delineated in Genesis chapter one, and you'll see why we're gonna go through it fairly quickly. Number one, if you look at day number one in creation, God separated the light from the dark. That was day number one. Day number two, God separates the waters in the heavens from the waters of the earth. That's the sky. Day number three. God separates the waters of the earth from dry land so that the earth begins to take form for people and animals to inhabit. Day number four, God creates the moon and the sun and the stars to to populate the the heavens that he had created. Day number five, God creates the fish and the birds. Day number six, God creates land animals and specifically and emphatically, humanity. Now, let me show you something that's kind of cool about this delineation and the way God structured scripture. You'll notice there's an incredible parallelism that happens here. Days one, two, and three, God is separated. There's separation happening. He separates the light from the dark, the waters in the heavens from the waters of the earth, the waters of the earth from dry land. Vegetation starts to appear on day three. But then days four, five, and six, he's concerned with population. He creates the moon and the sun and the stars to populate the light and the dark. He creates the fish and the birds to populate the waters in the heavens and the waters of the earth. He populates land animals and humanity to populate the dry land. There's this incredible poetic parallel that happens throughout this that shows us not so much the mechanism of creation, but it shows us the intentionality of creation. The fact that when God decided to create, he created purposefully and intentionally and creatively and, by the way, with structure. Remember we talked about last week the fact that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That Spirit of God began to impose creation, impose order, and structure on what had previously been chaotic, void, null, nothingness. And just just very quickly, I want you to think about your life. Just, just for a quick second. We're, we're gonna come back to this, but just think about your life. Do you ever feel like maybe the world is too chaotic. Can I just, if you do, just raise your hand. Eric, you know, you don't have to, but I mean, it's, it's easy, I think, particularly in the world that you and I inhabit, in the moment that we inhabit, to become overwhelmed with processing information, with processing news, with processing feelings. And it's, it's easy, I think, to, to have this, this very real sense of, chaos swirling around us and not really sure where we fit in. it. in those moments, never forget that God, the Bible tells us, is a God of order and not of disorder. He is the God of structure and not of chaos. He is also the God of fluid movement and dynamic response to circumstances and situations. So while we say that he is constant, you and I just strive for consistency But God is constant ever since the beginning, ever since before the beginning. God has been a God of order and structure. And you see this in creation. I I was thinking about this particularly this morning. Man, when you wake up in Austin, Texas on a morning like this, you are living Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You're you're living, like you wake up and the air is fresh and clean and it's beautiful outside That's Genesis 1 and 2. At every stage of creation, God looked at what he had made and he said, and it is good. It is good. It is good. But now, some of us, maybe maybe you've got cedar allergies. Who's got cedar allergies? Okay, you understand Genesis 3. This represents the fall of humanity, a broken world in which we live. Now, allergies are, are just kind of a nominal, nominal representation of a fallen world. But we understand intuitively, we we understand experientially that that this world is badly broken. But, But here's the message of Genesis 1 and 2, particularly as it relates to humanity, particularly as it relates to what God was up to when He created people. You see, God created humanity on purpose with purpose. We did not just happen. And and I'm a a huge fan of science, by the way. Let me me just state that right up front. I think science helps us tremendously in so, so many ways. I, I think science in a lot of ways is starting to catch up to God and starting to catch up to understand how this world actually is wired up and what God's intention and design is. But if you... Follow that reasoning, that doesn't mean that those who call themselves scientists are always speaking truth or reality. And if you believe that we crawled out of the primordial ooze, may, may I just challenge you, and, and and I mean this sincerely, respectfully say, who made the ooze? Where did that come from? There, this world defies spontaneous generation. Your heart, if if I can, I think our hearts defy the belief in spontaneous generation that we just kind of happened. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2 shows us what God was up to. That he created humanity on purpose with a purpose. But the other side of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 the other side of this is that you and I were not created to bear the weight of being God. We were created to bear the image of God. I'm going to say that again. We were not created to bear the weight of being God. We were created to bear the image of God. That's why he made us. Genesis Chapter number one. We're gonna look at verses 26 through 27 and then proceed into the part that may appear to be redundant but is not. Verse 26, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Now, time out real quick. Go ahead and take that down for just a second. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image. That looks like a grammatical error there. It looks like there's no subject-verb agreement, like you all of a sudden got singular, and then it goes to plural. This is the opening statement of the Trinity, The, the fact that God is one in three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and three in one. There's this incredible unity and community in the Godhead. That word when it says God in the original Hebrew is Elohim, it is plural. It means the Godhead said to amongst themselves, let us make man in our image. Now I understand that the Trinity, if you're not familiar with it, it can be a little bit like off putting like one in three, three and one, I don't understand. All I will tell you is get in line. <laughs> Nobody understands the Trinity. It just is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit eternal and co-eternal with one another. They have always been and will always be, yet they are united. Jesus prayed in John chapter 15 for his followers. May they be one as you and I are one, that unitedness of the Godhead. So that's what's going on here. Now back back to the text. Let us make human beings in our image to be like us, They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. It's a great verb, isn't it, scurry. So, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. In the beginning, God created humanity in his image. That ought to make you just kind of sit up a little bit taller for at least a hot second. That that verse ought to help your posture. When you understand that you personally, by name, carry the image, the spiritual character and nature of God himself. And more to the point, he specifically thought of you. I mean, he he conceived of you for that very purpose. The reason you're here on the earth is to represent God. Turn to your neighbor like you mean it with a smile on your face. Tell him, represent. Some of y'all don't know what that's all about. But that's why you're here. That's why I'm here, to represent God. <laughs> that kind of puts a little more weight on what we do with our free time, doesn't it? Puts a little more weight on how we handle our relationships puts a little more weight on why we work. It puts a little more weight on everything. But it also opens up the possibility of the purposes of a perfect God, that you're created on purpose with this purpose in mind. Psalm chapter 139 tells us, that before we were knit together in our mother's wombs, God knew us. So, before you were conceived, before you were a gleam in your mama's eye, God knew you, your soul was already accounted for and marked out for creation, for meaning, and for purpose. Whew. Wow. Now, I said just a moment ago that we weren't created by God to bear the weight of being God. And I think this is where we can start to get in a little bit of trouble. But because we all just kind of have this predisposition to function as little g gods, we all, we all like to make our own calls. We all like to call the shots in our lives. Especially here in America, we, we, we believe in the myth of the self-made man, the self-made woman. It was more than a few years ago, a really good friend of mine was working out. This friend is a pastor, and he was working out on a Saturday afternoon. And he was doing an exercise, some kind of movement with dumbbells. I don't know what, you know, press or whatever. And... He went to put them back on the rack, set them back down, and when he did, he discovered very quickly that whoever had set the weights next to those back on the rack had not put them down securely. And when he put his weights down, a 35-pound weight fell from three feet high in the air onto his big toe. I know, it's, I've seen it. Personally, I saw it the day after it happened. I'm scarred for life. (laughs) It was was a devastating injury. Now I want you to think about your big toe. Most of us don't think about the big toe unless we stub it on something or we're watching Stripes or we're hearing a story about it, but your big toe is a big deal. Well, his big toe was crushed. He went to the hospital, got it x-rayed, he was gonna need surgery, but he was due to preach the next day. So the next morning, a doctor in the church, this was like the NFL, met him backstage, shot him up, and sent him out on stage. (laughs) He preached that morning, sitting down in a chair with his leg elevated. Now, 35 pounds is not that much weight. It's not. You you could press it. You could squat with it. Ron Burgundy could curl it a 1,000 plus times. But our big toes were not meant, they're not structured to handle 35 pounds falling from three feet in the air at 32 feet per second squared. It's more weight than a big toe can handle. Being God is more weight than we can handle. We're not built this way, and heaven help the person in our lives that we hope will satisfy our needs, wants, and desires more than God. Then we're putting on that person the same weight that we're asking them to be God in our lives, to satisfy us, to meet our needs, to meet our wants, to meet our deficiencies, when it is God and God alone who can do that. In the beginning, God created And God made man in his image, male and female, he made them. Now Genesis chapter one is really just kind of a blow by blow description of creation. It just shows the order in which it happened. I would suggest to you that if you challenge the validity of the Bible because of six days of creation, go back and look at it as it's written. In the original language. It's written as a sequential history, not necessarily a chronological history. Now, for a lot of years, Christians have been have been scared. Christians have felt like, I don't know if we can if we can give up that ground, because then what do we do with the? just everybody kind of take a deep breath? When you read the word day in Genesis chapter 1, it's the Hebrew word Yom, and it can mean a day, 24 hours. It can also mean an era of time, like you know, we say back in the day, that doesn't mean on April the fourth, nineteen seventy-six. That just means way back when. We don't know. Everybody say I don't know. I don't know. In that, just can we take a moment? How liberating is I don't know? How just, oh, but. I don't know does not change the narrative of creation. We're not giving up anything to say I don't know. What Genesis 1 tells us to do is to honor the sanctity of human life. Honor the sanctity of human life. The word sanctity means a set-apartness. Specifically, it means holiness set apart for the purposes of God, and that is every human life. If I may, just for a second, how much more loving, how much more inviting would our world, our communities, our city, our nation, be if if we, everybody, honored the sanctity of human life. I kinda think on this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, that was the message of Dr. King. That every life, every life is sacred. Every life. Now, Martin Luther King has many quotes. But I want to read a quote about Dr. King. It was made by by Robert F. Kennedy. I believe it was in the wake of Dr. King's assassination. He says this. We can move in the direction as a country of greater polarization. Black people amongst blacks, white amongst whites, filled with hatred toward one another, or We can make an effort, as Martin Luther King Jr. did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that has spread across our land with an effort to understand, compassion, and love. Compassion toward one another and a feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. The sanctity of human life takes care of this. The sanctity of human life. That's, that's over 50 years ago and it's today. It's today. I believe with everything I have that you and I, as the body of Christ, have such an enormous opportunity in these days to love our neighbor. To love our neighbor. And to say nothing, to post nothing that adds to or feeds division or distrust. Well, what about when they, well, what about when they? Oh yeah, well, if they hit, We must stop it. Amen. We must stop it. The world's gonna keep being the world, folks. The world, and by the way, when I tell you we love our country, warts and all, we love our country. But you never show love by ignoring fault, it is never an act of grace to ignore truth. we have to be better, we have to do better. And when we honor the sanctity of human life, that is being better and doing better. Isn't it amazing where the Bible goes? Isn't it amazing that everything the gospel touches, it makes better? Everything. There's a hard word in our world right now, and it's the word evangelical. Evangelical in its strictest sense means one who believes in orthodox Christianity. Someone who believes that Scripture is the word of God that Jesus is the Son of God, and that he died on the cross and rose again for our sins. That's an evangelical. But over the last 50 years, that word has been co-opted. It's been co-opted to represent a political group. Now, Christians are absolutely called to participate in the public square. That's our, that's our responsibility. We, we are the dealers of hope and the dealers of grace and truth. So we have to participate. We, it's not enough to go, Mm-mm, I'm gonna go be a monk and live on a mountain somewhere. We, we have to engage. But we engage from the perspective of the gospel, not from the perspective of a political party And if you think God only votes Democrat, you don't know God well. If you think God only votes Republican, you don't know God well. Neither side has a corner on the market either in platform, policy, or person. We must be better and do better. And it starts by honoring the sanctity of human life. By loving our neighbor. Jesus said that's number two on the whole list. Number one, love God, but number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's contrary to human nature. That's not our natural bent. I don't care how sweet and, you know, unicorn you think you are. That ain't you. That ain't me. That ain't none of us. But, but Jesus. But Jesus. What God shows us in 2 Corinthians chapter five. And he died for all. He died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, ever since that moment, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. A new creation. The old has passed away, the old died. <laughs> Theoretically. A new creation. Can you imagine just with me for a moment? The moment in time that God spoke and light came into existence. Just poof. That's a it's an amazing thing to comprehend, to just even try to imagine. But that's what he did. God spoke. Light into the world. God spoke light. And then the Bible says that in the beginning, the Word was God, the Word was with God. And the Word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. He moved into the neighborhood. I wanna ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. And in this moment, I wanna put in the frontal lobe of your brain the picture of a new creation. A new creation. Because what God did in Genesis chapter 1 is the same thing that Jesus does in a life surrendered to him. He brings order. He brings life. He brings hope. He brings truth. And that may mean, as a matter of fact, that will mean a reordering, a restructuring in order to fulfill the purposes for which you were created. If you're here today and you've never stepped into that, maybe you're watching online and you've never made that your own, we want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. to pray. Prayer is two-way communication from your heart to God's, from God to you. And so if you wanna take that step and make that commitment, then we invite you to pray. Silently talk to God, just say, Jesus, I need you. I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that I need you. And so I surrender my life to you. I respond now to your grace. And in order to claim your forgiveness, God, I confess my sin. I'm not holding anything back God, I'm asking you in this moment to sanctify my life. Set it apart for your purposes. And Jesus, I will follow you from this moment forward. I pray this prayer in your name. Just for a second, I want to ask you to remain with your heads bowed. And I want you to know that if that was your prayer, this is the beginning, the beginning of a new creation, a new life. And as a church, we want to help with what comes next. We want to come alongside you. We want to celebrate, but we also want to help. In just a minute, we'll give you some instructions on how that happens, but as our heads are bowed, I wanna ask you, if you just prayed to begin a relationship with Christ, would you raise your hand? Just lift your hand high in the air and hold it up for a second as a statement of faith. And know that as a church, we celebrate that with you. And our family tradition around here is that you can put your hands down, but we're gonna put our hands together and tell you, welcome home, welcome home.